Welcome to Medical Student Study Cast, the podcast to help third-year medical students study for clerkships, where I have the questions and you have the answers. I'm your host, Josh Bradford, a third-year medical student at Rocky Vista University. The goal of this podcast is to help medical students study for high-yield topics, actively test knowledge, and practice providing answers to preceptor questions. I use several resources and picked out some of the highest-yield information. This podcast uses a question-and-answer format, which can help test and gauge what you know and help identify the knowledge gaps. I encourage you to do your best to actively answer the questions. This isn't a podcast you can passively listen to but this will be a useful way to help spend time commuting. Let's get started. Psychiatry Clerkship. In this episode, we will cover anxiety, PTSD, OCD, and impulse control disorders. Some general advice. Anxiety disorders are also high yield. So almost everything we've done up to this point is high yield, starting with the highest yield stuff. Uh, Pay close attention to a lot of these diseases. They'll be very common in real life and on the wards. It's easy to identify with a lot of anxiety disorders because the sensations are similar to what the average person feels, but these disorders are unique because the control over the sensation is lost or the response is out of control. Anxiety disorders are generally more common in women. And then lastly, pay attention to physical symptoms because there are a lot of medical diagnoses that overlap or hint toward the disorder. For example, a panic attack versus a myocardial infarction, or cavities in bulimic patients. So pay attention to any time they give you a detailed physical finding, detailed physical history, any sort of lab tests or images. Make sure that each one of these is normal and not indicating a disease before you rule out a medical disorder or rule in a specific psychiatric disorder. Let's get started with our first case. A 27-year-old female presents to the ED with tachycardia, chest pain, shortness of breath, sweating, tingling in her hands, and nausea. She has a history of smoking. She is afraid that she is dying and worried about the future. What is the best next step? A lot of questions on these tests ask best next step. So, this looks like panic disorder, but it can be a lot of other things. So what are some of the other things that it could be that need to be ruled out? Some related disorders include acute MI, asthma, hyperthyroidism, drug use, such as cocaine. So therefore, what is the best next step? In this case, we need to do some labs, such as troponin, TSH, urinalysis, and tox screen, or some imaging, such as an EKG or pulmonary scan. Now, what is panic disorder? Panic disorder is an acute physical and emotional sensation of fear and anxiety and the associated symptoms. Um, Just as a side note, it's worth noting that smoking is a risk factor for panic attacks. Anxiety is characterized by what emotional sensations? These include fear and worry and also hypervigilance. So an anxious person might be anxious about certain things and will be incredibly vigilant about those things. For example, afraid of driving, and so if they ever see cars, they'll be really aware of them. If they're in a car, they will be super scared and aware of what's going on. 
in case there might be any crashes or anything like that. What physical symptoms can occur? So there's racing heart, insomnia, dyspnea. So a lot of these symptoms overlap with both disorders because the people that are having an acute MI can have the same worries and fears as well as racing heart, stuff like that. All right, so our patient, all of the tests come back negative. What's the first line treatment? So the first line treatment to bring someone out of an acute panic attack is a benzodiazepine. And what's the best drug for long-term use in decreasing frequency of panic attacks? And that would be SSRIs. SSRIs are very common, used for OCD, depression, a lot of other things that we're going to talk about here. How often do these symptoms need to occur before the diagnosis can be made? So the symptoms need to occur at least once a month. There has to be a worry about the anxiety attacks reoccurring, and there can't be a specific trigger. This is an important key. There cannot be a specific trigger. Okay, if there is a specific trigger, what is it called? So these are called phobias, which is an intense fear and anxiety about a specific situation or thing, and it's completely uncontrollable. What are examples of specific phobias? These include spiders, heights, flying, social or outdoor situations. What's a fear of people or places where the patient can't get help? If they feel like they can't get help in social situations with people and places, that's agoraphobia. A lot of people think of agoraphobia as going outside, but it's actually the inability to get help when going outside. So if they are with, I mean, I have a friend whose wife is agoraphobic, and so she'll go with him to the store, she'll even go with him on vacation, but if she is by herself in any of these new places, that's when she freaks out. What's an example of a social phobia? So public speaking is one example of a social phobia. And what's the best treatment? In this case, it's symptomatic relief, and it would be a beta blocker, such as propranolol. What about a social phobia in almost all situations with a high fear of criticism? You're going to have to think back to what we've previously talked about, a high fear of criticism and social phobia in most situations would be avoidant personality disorder. So they get really scared if they're gonna go talk to any new people, they're gonna be really scared going out and going to a movie with you know some coworkers who invited them. They might lose their job because their uh, report was too critical, or they quit their job, I mean. In general, what's the best treatment for phobias? Like the answer for most um, therapy, CBT, cogn Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, is generally the best treatment. There are other examples um, of specific therapies that work better, but if you had to guess overall, CBT is most likely. Moving on, a 31-year-old female is worried that she might be fired from her job, but is afraid to look elsewhere. She has difficulty driving more than 10 miles away from home because she's worried she might get lost. She constantly checks in on our two children to make sure they're safe and often won't let them play with friends in the neighborhood in case they get hurt. What does she have? She has generalized anxiety disorder. 
And what is generalized anxiety disorder, or GAD? This is a general fear that occurs in multiple locations about multiple things. It's described as a constant state of worry for how long? Because this is general and it occurs about most things, it also has to occur for most months, is how I think about it. So at least six months out of the year. So it's greater than six months. And there generally are physical symptoms related to it. What's the best treatment for long-term success? This is psychotherapy, including CBT, about reframing and understanding the fears. What's the best medication for long-term treatment? SSRIs, just like depression, PTSD, bulimia. And if there are um, progressive physical symptoms and increased hypervigilance, what's a non-addictive version of a drug that can be given? And I was going for Buspirone here. Uh, it's not a benzo, but it's uh, kind of considered in some uh, ways a non-addictive benzo. Over time, it decreases anxiety and can be useful here. Next case. A 27-year-old male with a prior history of military service and combat time that ended two years ago. He self-medicates with alcohol and marijuana, but two weeks ago an action movie started a panic attack. He has, since then, he has slept less than three hours a night and awakens with vivid nightmares. He constantly checks the locks on the doors and is hypervigilant. What is it? This is PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. What is the initiating factor for PTSD or acute stress disorder? Like the name implies, it's some sort of trauma. So it's one or more severe life-threatening traumas and the more severe and the more internalized the stressor, the more likely that PTSD will occur. What is the timing for acute stress disorder? So this is when there's a trauma and the symptoms last less than one month. So what's the timing for PTSD? PTSD is when the symptoms last greater than one month. And by definition, when symptoms last longer, it can be more difficult to treat. What are examples of traumas that can cause this that might be in the clinical vignette and are really important to keep in mind? So if you hear any of these, at least start thinking PTSD or acute stress disorder. These include sexual assault, threatened death, combat in a military situation, physical abuse, and then watching someone else be attacked, raped, murdered, killed in combat, anything like that. What if a patient has memory loss when difficult questions about the trauma are asked? So dissociative amnesia can be similar in a lot of ways to PTSD, and they can have memory gaps and forget things about situation or themselves or time period, but they can only be made, the diagnosis of dissociative amnesia can only be made if PTSD isn't there. So if there are all the other symptoms of PTSD, it's PTSD. Remember that. What are important features of PTSD? So there should be signs of the intrusion of memories or flashbacks that then trigger a physiologic response. 
also. There's generally depressed or irritable mood. And the individual wants to avoid the situations that can trigger the memories and responses. And there's a mental arousal and awareness about the current situation, especially if something triggers them. What's the best treatment for PTSD? So psychotherapy is, and this includes group therapy, to be able to process and understand the information, as well as exposure therapy to decrease this physiologic response to a trigger. All right, moving on, a 12-year-old boy who jumped from, a tr from foster house to foster house for the first eight years of his life. He finally got adopted by new parents, but they worry because he seems incredibly distant. He won't tell them anything, hasn't made close friends, despite putting him in sports and other activities at school. Okay, this is reactive attachment disorder, and it's um, an inability to make appropriate relationship connections. Now, what if you have that same boy, but he made friends with everybody and, you know, gave hugs and got in people's physical space and told too much private information? He excessively and inappropriately connected. What would he have? This is disinhibited social engagement disorder. And both of these disorders can have a very similar history. It's just they connect or they don't. And what's the similarity in early history? So both will have some sort of neglect in early childhood. You might see adoption from a orphanage in um, Russia or somewhere where they don't have enough caregivers per child. What is the initiating factor for adjustment disorder? So adjustment disorder compared to acute stress disorder does not have a life-threatening stressor, but would have an important stressor in life. For example, the loss of job of a 42-year-old male who used to provide for his family. And so now he might have emotional instability and anxiety and depression What's the time frame for adjustment disorder? Onset within three months from stressor and a duration generally less than six months. It can't meet the criteria for other disorders. And this is incredibly common in outpatient and inpatient psychiatric units. And what's the best therapy? This is primary support therapy and psychotherapy with bridging pharmacotherapy. So they have a support group, they can talk through some of the um, stresses and problems and how they can reframe those to not be so reactive. And then you can give them SSRIs in the meantime as they get over the acute stress. Right, there's a patient who believes that his hands are dirty and must be washed multiple times. Can't get any work done because he repeatedly washes his hands several times an hour until they bleed. He might get fired from his job if he doesn't start getting more work done. What is this? This is obsessive compulsive disorder. What are the two pieces of the disorder? Well, they're obviously obsessions and compulsions. Obsessions lead to the compulsions. So obsessions increase anxiety and compulsions decrease anxiety. So obsessions are recurring thoughts that are intrusive and increase anxiety. And then the compulsions are the repeated behaviors that relieve the anxiety. So the thought might be, I've touched a lot of things, my hands are dirty. 
I've touched a lot of things, my hands are dirty. Oh no, I'm gonna get sick, my hands are dirty. I'm gonna get sick, my hands are dirty. And the compulsion is, go wash your hands, go wash your hands. If your hands are dirty, go wash your hands. And then they go wash their hands and they feel better. What is the best treatment for OCD? This would be cognitive-based therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy that can help um, patients face the obsession and learn to prevent doing the compulsion. I've heard it described as feeding the dragon. So if they have the obsession and they don't give into it, then they starve the dragon and the dragon gets weaker and the obsessions progressively decrease. Although at first the dragon might get mad, over time it's really important that they don't give into the compulsion. What other condition often occurs with OCD? And this is really high yield and important to keep in mind. This is Tourette's syndrome, someone who has vocal and motor tics. And a good way to think about this is OCD, washing a hand is like a complex tic. And Tourette's syndrome, if they you know, have a facial tic where they blink their eyes, it's like a mini compulsion. And so they're kind of connected. Tourette's occurs in about 5% of OCD patients. Okay, we have a patient who keeps newspapers for the last 20 years in stacks in their house because they can't throw them away because the patient might need them in the future. The papers are kept even though they haven't been used for years. What is this disorder? This is hoarding disorder. They hoard generally useless items and have incredible difficulty getting rid of them. A 22-year-old female that believes she has wrinkles on her face and is obsessed with getting a facelift. She constantly checks her face on her phone and is self-conscious about going out in public without extensive makeup on. What is this disorder? This is body dysmorphia. Now, what if the same patient was um, relatively thin but thought she was fat, restricted her food, binged sometimes? What would that be? Now, she still has the obsession about her face, she thinks that her face is fat and wrinkly. Now this might be body dysmorphia with anorexia, but if she didn't have the obsession about her face, anorexia is a separate diagnosis. We'll get to more of that later. A salesman with a history of outbursts who is at risk for losing his job, an incident includes when he screamed at his receptionist and threw his chair at the wall when his coffee mug disappeared. What's this? This is an intermittent explosive disorder, and it's found when there's a stressor and it's relieved by violence. So it's kind of like OCD, but the compulsion is violence. There's a mild and severe form. What constitute the mild form? So the mild form is two incidents per week for three months, and that just might be yelling, um, tends to involve a lot less physical damage, more of an emotional, angry outburst. Now what constitutes the severe version? This is three incidents ever within a year. What constitutes a severe incident? So this is physical harm to others or larger property damage. So this might be the sports star who hospitalizes multiple men after they insult him at a bar and smashes in their cars the way out. And the likely outcome for this disorder is what? As you can imagine, this are legal charges and incarceration. It is important to understand that the outbursts do not have an ulterior purpose and are spontaneous. This is composed, opposed, excuse me, <laughs> supposed to antisocial disorder, 
where someone might yell or break things, but there's personal gain and a lack of empathy. Although there is some impulse control problems with antisocial, there's also the lack of empathy and personal gain portion. Who are more likely to have this, men or women? So men are more likely to have intermittent explosive disorder, and it makes sense because it's kind of a violent disorder. And then here's something interesting I found. What test comes up positive in IED, or intermittent explosive disorder? So there's a low mean of 5-HIAA, or hydroxyindoleacetic acid. And what's that a metabolite of? This is going back to uh, neurophysiology. This is a serotonin metabolite in the CSF of some patients is where it's found. Um, so there's less serotonin. Uh, and if serotonin is something that can make us happier over time, maybe there's a correlation between that and this uh, IED disorder. A 25-year-old female walks into a clothing store and sees a pair of pants that she wants. So if she had kleptomania, what occurs next in her mind? So she might have a strong desire to steal the item even though she could buy it. Now, the sens sensation causes anxiety and stress. And let's say that this individual decides to steal the pants. After she leaves the store, what's her emotional reaction? Generally, kleptomaniacs are guilty, feel guilty after they have the sensation, and decides to, um, she decides to give her friend the pair of pants, and it helps relieve her guilt. What are some important features of kleptomania? These are often young males. They steal items of lower value that they can afford, and then they feel stress and guilt afterwards, do things to relieve this. All right. There's a guy who lights a building on fire and just stares and watches it with a huge smile on his face. What is this? There's pyromania. And what's the reason for setting the fire? Increased sexual arousal and enjoyment. How often do the fires need to occur to make the diagnosis of pyromania? At least twice. I think that's saying that if someone did it once, maybe they're trying it out, they're like, it wasn't as good as I thought it would be, or it wasn't worth all the damage and problems. If it occurs twice, we're like, we're not giving you two, three strikes and then you're out. No, just twice. And which uh, gender is more likely to have this? So men are more likely, again, think about the violence. On this next disorder, really pay attention to physical symptoms. So a 19-year-old female wants uh, an ADHD test. Upon question, she appears low energy and can't remember her last menstrual period. She's very thin and looks cold in the exam room and gown. Several times during the exam, she asks to be prescribed Ritalin, but doesn't really seem to meet the criteria for ADHD. What is it? So this is anorexia nervosa. And what's the BMI level required to diagnose anorexia? Normal is between 18.5 to 25, and so it's less than that, so less than 18.5. What sorts of behaviors are really common in anorexia? So they're restriction behaviors and purging behaviors. Restricting behaviors include dieting, fasting or skipping meals, and excessive energy. And purging behaviors, which are often really related and thought of uh, 
commonly associated bulimia um, include vomiting and diarrhea. So anorexia is in this whole group of disorders we're talking about today because it's an anxiety disease. So what is the fear? What's the anxiety? So there's a fear that the patient is fat or will become fat and uh, an actual misperception oftentimes that the patient is currently fat even if they are underweight. All right, so there are a lot of severe outcomes for anorexia. What's a commonly tested one associated with some medications? And that's seizures and what medication can cause seizures with anorexia? So really anything that lowers the seizure threshold, but especially bupropion is a very commonly uh, tested drug. Really good for not gaining weight, but in this case you might want uh, to give a drug that can help gain weight. Anorexia is related to what other conditions? Other conditions related to anorexia include OCD or MDD. Uh, it's important to note that self-control is shown in anorexia, you know, their ability to restrict food and get to a really low weight. Um, it can actually be beneficial, the, the self-control aspect. If you can control the anxiety and the depression and the body dysmorphia, uh, individuals with anorexia actually have a correlation with academic and occupational achievement if treated effectively. And so these patients can have a really good outcome. Um, what is the treatment? So if the BMI is above 15, then they can be placed into a nutrition program. Their body has to be healthy and they have to have stable vitals. Now, what would cause hospitalization? Hospitalization would be a BMI less than 15 and then signs that anorexia is affecting the physical health. And those include low blood pressure, low heart rate, like bradycardia, low body temperature, a loss of electrolyte balance, decrease in menstrual cycle or amenorrhea, and osteoporosis. Uh, all of these things are, I'm kind of imagining a lack of general dietary needs being met, calcium and proteins being pulled from the bone, there's not enough iron um, you know, in the body to maintain uh, the normal menstrual cycle, low energy for uh, the heart, and anyway, so with all of these disorders, keep and pay attention to the physical symptoms. Now, a uh, patient is average looking and they have cavities in their teeth and scars in the backs of their hands and um, depression, anxiety. What are we looking at here? So the cavities or the erosion of enamel and the scars in the back of the hands are indicative of inducing vomiting. So if the patient is not appearing to uh, be underweight, so they're between a BMI of 18.5 to 25, it'll be bulimia. And what are the common behaviors in bulimia? Bulimia is described as a binge purge, and so they might have some restriction and then feel the overwhelming desire to binge on food and then increase guilt after binging and uh, leads to either vomiting, self-induced vomiting, or taking um, laxatives that can cause diarrhea and decrease the body's ability to absorb nutrients. 
And it's the vomiting, sticking the hand into the back of the throat, that uh, can cause the scars in the back of the hand if they get stomach acid on them. And then uh, ex excessive stomach acid on the teeth can cause erosion of the enamel. Now, what lab testing should be performed on a vomiting bulimic patient? So we should do a uh, basic metabolic panel with electrolytes. And what would be seen with that? You'd see a metabolic alkalosis because they're vomiting, they're losing stomach acid, which just leads to an alkalosis as they lose acid. And then an additional hypokalemia and hypochloremia. So low acid, low potassium, low chloride. And then what if there was diarrhea was the main source of purging? Well, there might be a metabolic acidosis because uh, bicarb is lost in diarrhea. Now, bulimia also has anxiety. We just talked about it. What increases the anxiety? Binging food. And what's the best treatment for bulimia? So the best long-term treatment for bulimia is SSRIs with psychotherapy. Uh, they should learn to identify that the behaviors are inappropriate and that uh, SSRIs have been shown to, to decrease the depression, anxiety, and help with the um, kind of underlying emotional problems in bulimia. What antidepressant that we just talked about shouldn't be used? Again, bupropion, and uh, it's, it in increases seizure risk. All right, there is a patient that cannot control the desire to eat food. They binge food and they're overweight. What is it? This is binge eating disorder. This might describe a significant portion of the American population, and there aren't compensatory behaviors such as restriction, purging, or excessive exercise. Okay, we just talked about several different disorders, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, impulse control. We're gonna go through a little bit of rapid fire review, some rapid review. Uh, starting with what is agoraphobia? This is described um, for, of the fear of places where the patient can't get help. What is the first line agent for an immediate panic attack? Benzodiazepines. A 22-year-old patient with fear of dying, chest pain, labored breathing, and tachycardic. The patient is doing fine in college, never experienced this before, and was at a party earlier. What do you do first? So in this case, the best choice might be a talk screen because they're at a party earlier. Symptoms could be some sort of stimulant like cocaine or methamphetamines. A 21-year-old female patient who's afraid to leave her room after an incident at a party two weeks ago that you won't tell anyone about, but now she's crying on a daily basis. Remember, this is two weeks ago, so what does this make this? This would be acute stress disorder, and the trauma is most likely a sexual trauma. Um, if this continued on past a month, what would it become? Become PTSD. How many times does a patient need to set fire for pleasure to be a pyromaniac? So two times or more, and it's usually men. What's the presentation for general anxiety disorder? multiple anxieties in multiple places 
for most of the year, also known as six months or greater. What condition is comorbid with OCD? All right, I'm sure you remember, this is Tourette's. Keep all of these associations in mind. Some of this stuff is the highest yield, and these rapid review questions are just a piece of what you really need to know. Should help solidify a lot of it. A 28-year-old male with large muscles, little body fat, that admits to taking anabolic steroids and going to the gym three to four hours a day. What is it? All right, so because um, illegal behavior such as anabolic steroids are taken and extensive daily behavior with an obsessive attitude, this is body dysmorphia. From a male aspect, it's more likely to be someone who wants to get really big. From a female aspect, it's more likely to be someone who wants to lose weight and get smaller. What is reactive attachment disorder? All right, that is a patient who most likely had some sort of abuse in their childhood where they didn't get much attention, maybe from a rough Russian orphanage, and have difficulty attaching. And what's it called if they attach too much too often inappropriately? That would be disinhibited social engagement disorder. Emotional and mental instability after the loss of the fiancé two months ago, and it resolves within a few months. What is it? This is adjustment disorder. It uh, can't last longer than how long, or generally resolves within how long, excuse me. Generally resolves within six months. A patient has low serotonin metabolite in his CSF. What might he have? Intermittent explosive disorder. And what's the criteria for the mild version? That would be two incidents per week for three months, and it has to be mild, so it's not severe, meaning that there's not extensive damage to individuals or property. Stealing items she can't afford and then returning them in secret. This is done repeatedly. What is it? Kleptomania. What is the BMI cutoff for anorexia? Must be less than 18.5. And what do you do with a teenage female who's very thin with hypotension, bradycardia, hypothermia, an abnormal BMP, and a BMI of 14.5? This would be hospitalization, and a possible drug is olanzapine, because that is more likely to induce weight gain, and I've also heard of mirtazapine being used. Normal female with hypokalemic metabolic alkalosis and scars on the back of the hand. What is it? Bulimia, what's the most likely way of purging? Well, between the scars and the alkalosis, this would be vomiting. With that, we finish up this episode. So thanks for listening to Medical Student StudyCast. Here's the quote of the day from Winston Churchill. Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. And here's another one by Winston Churchill. Success consists of going from failure to failure without any loss of enthusiasm. I love both those quotes. If you appreciate this podcast, please consider supporting this content by donating to my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash medical student study cast. If you have comments or concerns, please contact me at medical student study cast at gmail.com. Share what you find helpful, changes you would like to see, and personal experiences with the podcast. Remember, I'm only a humble third-year medical student, so if I make any mistakes, please feel free to let me know, and I will do my best to correct and provide the most useful, concise, and accurate study tool that I can. 
Disclaimer. This podcast is not meant to be the only resource of learning used for medical student clerkships. This podcast is not affiliated with Rockefeller University and should not be used to diagnose or treat patients. I'd like to thank freemusicarchive.org for the intro and outro music.